Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. My buddy Alyssa Mastromonaco is one of the most astonishing people I know, short and cherubic. She nonetheless could command armies, and sort of did for us in 2008 when she was director of scheduling in advance for the Obama campaign, and later as deputy chief of staff in the White House running all the operations there. She's whip-smart, wise, hilarious, irreverent, all of which are on display in her latest book. So here's the thing. Notes on growing up, getting older, and trusting your gut. I sat down with Alyssa in New York recently to talk about her book, her life, politics, and a lot of other stuff that was on her very fertile mind that day. Here's that conversation. Alyssa Mastromonaco, the little general. Little general. My, uh, the name that you earned. From? Uh, from our Obama years. What was the day? When did I? So the general came from our announcement tour. Yes. And we were in New Hampshire after we had been chased by an ice storm for two days. And I finally like fell asleep on the floor waiting for the event to be done. And Oprah came around the corner and said, where's the general? And I was like, shit, where am I going to find the general? And she was talking to me. So yes, I'll take that one general. to my grave. I'll take that one to my grave. Uh, we'll get to all of that. But the, but what I learned is that you, this is, came naturally to you, that you were, you were an organizer like at the age of four. Yeah, I was. And it's actually a, a sad story. And I think that hopefully nursery schools are different now. But um, I had somehow learned that my teacher, I think Mrs. Templeton was her name. Her birthday in was Beck, coming New up. York. No, this, yeah, this, was in, um, this was in Poughkeepsie where we oh. first lived. And uh, so I, we had this thing called the Windy House where everybody got together and like played when it was cold out. And so I got all the four-year-olds together and said, you guys, it's Mrs. Templeton's birthday. Let's throw her a party. And so I assigned everybody things to bring in. And when the teacher, when the parents went to the teachers and were like, should I be bringing these cupcakes in? Um, I got in trouble even though it was true, for lying. And I had to apologize. My, my mom remembered the story. I had to stand on one of the desks in the nursery school and apologize to everyone for lying. That's, that's cold. It's cold. It was a hardcore nursery school. It was very organic. <laughs> it was called Freedom Plains, but there was nothing free about it. Yeah, man. Um, so tell me about your folks. Oh, my goodness. So my mom... Uh, is from New Jersey, and my dad was in the Bronx, and then they moved to Westchester, and he was a engineer for IBM, and actually started working at IBM when he was in college. So he was able to retire in his early 40s, something I have not achieved. Wow. Something I have not achieved, and start a second life, you know, as and started his own company. And my mom was a fashion merchandiser, and it was only about two weeks what ago. What is that? I don't. It's only about two weeks ago that I found out what that really meant. And so my mom worked in the garment district in the late '60s and early '70s, and it was her job to go to department stores like Lord and Taylor and Bloomingdale's. And she was like this whole racket she had, and she would go and buy the new fashions from real fashion designers, bring them back. They would take them apart copy them and she they would sew them back together and she would return them and she's telling us this story and I'm like mom you're basically like the fashion mafia underground <laughs> because you couldn't buy 10 dresses from Lord and Taylor and return them the next day without raising eyebrows and she was like I had friends everywhere <laughs> and so and we had she had never told us that story and we were howling with laughter at dinner she also had a friend who used to say Jiminy Crackers which we also thought was very funny and your grandmother uh, oh. came from Germany. Yes. Huh? Omi, uh, Omi had quite the life. And as she Just got mom's older, mom? my mom's mom, and as she got older, she would tell me more stories. And, you know, she was in her 
early 90s when she was telling me some of it. But basically, her family had been sort of part of the righteous Gentiles, and they helped get Jews out of Germany. And so several of the people she knew and family members had been captured by Nazis and taken to Auschwitz and escaped, um, got captured again. And when they got to the camp, it was actually liberated by the Americans. And so I'm like, how have you never told this story, Ohm? And she's like, who cares anymore? And so she actually had had my uncle Dieter already and they had to escape and they went into the Swiss Alps and lived with the nuns. Wow. And she had her only possession. Was she wasn't in the sound of music, was she? Okay, no, but see, my friend, my best friend, Kara, always says that when we were in high school and we would tell the story. She was like, stop, you're not Anne Frank. Stop telling it. And you're not <laughs> in the sound of music. Stop making it up. And I'm not making it up. But she, her only possessions were these aquamarines. And she put them in my uncle's diaper. And, and they came across the ocean. And they made it to New Jersey, of all places, where her first job and the job that she... Um, it's just like such a great story. She was the woman before online when you wanted to order from a catalog. She was the lady at Bambergers that would pack your coat and your clothes and ship it to you. And so they got discounts for working there and she had a couple coats made for herself and they actually fit me perfectly and I still have them. And because they had so little when they got here, uh, she took such care of it. The papers weren't, the coats weren't paper and the sleeves were stuffed with paper and there's not one moth, you know, bite or hole or anything in any of them. So I have about five of her coats. How one about the aquamarines? Where'd they go? My sister's birthday's in March, so she gets the aquamarines. <laughs> I see. Uh, and, and so what is it about the way you were raised that uh, pointed you in the direction of being the little general? Well, it's interesting. My parents always really let me do whatever I wanted, not in like a bratty millennial way. It was kind of like try and fail. It's not like you get to eat whatever you want for dinner, which was definitely not the case. Um, but, you know, one of my favorite memories, which again was disputed until I proved that my memory is better than everybody's, was when we had Girl Scout cookie sales for the first time when I was trying to become a brownie. And I was like, you know, we'd go to dance class and all the moms were selling their kids cookies. And my mom was like, that will not be happening. And so <laughs> I had to go around my neighborhood. They gave me a walkie talkie. You know, it's like 1982. They gave me a walkie talkie and I went from door to door. But because I was so nervous about going out, everybody had already bought their cookies. So I never got my badge and I never made it to Brownie. That's but it was, you know, for them just... If I had an interest in something, they would push me. I started taking French at a really young age. My parents both could speak French. And so, you know, by the time I was in seventh or eighth grade, my dad would put breakfast out and he would say, okay, wait, wait, before we eat, Alyssa, what's on the table? And it gave rise to one of the best nicknames of all time because we were having grapefruit that morning. And Pop said, you know, what's that? And I said, it's a pomplamoose. And my sister was coming down the stairs and she goes, I'm not a plump little moose. <laughs> and her name has been Moose for 36 years. <laughs> and and, and, and in, uh, you had all a bunch of jobs when you were in high school. Oh, and they yes. I was a real... Um, I always liked having my own money, mostly so I could see Fish and Grateful Dead shows without having to ask my parents for money. Um, but yes, I bagged groceries, which actually came in very... The experience of working in a grocery store, which was the only grocery store that took food stamps for about 25 miles, um, gave me great perspective as a 15-year-old about people's struggles and what's fair and what's not fair and what dignity is, you know, and, and then I worked. Such a big thing, you know. It was a big we thing. We talk about this. I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, story, of course. We talk about these things in clinical ways, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I actually think Democrats have been guilty of this, uh, you know, the whole thing about liberals who loving humanity but hating people. Yes. I mean, the fact is that jobs are more than paychecks. You know, they're, and people do hard work all over the place, and they're like invisible. It's, you know, uh, you know, and they're not afforded the dignity that they deserve. Well, and the thing that I learned too is that when I was, you know, 15, 16 working at Kilmer's IGA, you know, I was working alongside 70 year old people who'd been doing it for 30 years, and everybody treated everybody with dignity and respect, and the people who would come through 
the line, um, I was the best bagger, as you can imagine. Yes. I, everybody wanted to be on my line the Wednesday <laughs> before Thanksgiving because I was very efficient. Um, but this Natalie Merchant from 10,000 Maniacs lives in town, and she would come grocery shopping. She was the first person I knew with recyclable grocery bags. And one day she comes through and she says, where are all the other girls? And I said, oh, they're getting ready for prom. And she said, well, why aren't you getting ready for prom? I said, well, because I have very short hair and I'm not doing anything for prom. And she said, well, where is it? And I told her it was at this place, Valor Mansion. And uh, she came and sang. She surprised wow. everybody, you know, and came and sang a couple songs with the girls who had been in choir. And when you see people do those things when you're pretty young. Did you, so did you end up going? Oh, I went, I was there. I just didn't need to put my little dress on and get going. I, oh, didn't, I, I didn't need to get my hair did. But, um, but when I saw that and she showed up and nobody knew why she showed up and I knew that it's cause she had the time to ask a random 16 year or 17 year old if she, what she was doing and where everybody was. And I think that, you know, being curious about other people is something I picked up. And I know you are an incredibly intellectually curious person. I've always said that about POTUS. That, and I think that's how we all melded so well together. Because even if we had our own ideas, we were always open and curious about what other people thought. And were malleable and open-minded. And I feel like, you know, that's really helped me over the years. You went up to the University of Vermont. I did. Bernie Sanders land. Bernie Sanders land. I tell you, I hope that politicians still do this. I didn't know you were a this. Sanders person until I read all of this. It was, well, I was very proud of myself because when Bernie caught fire, when everyone started to feel the burn, I was like, you guys, I might actually be political Forrest Gump because <laughs> the first person I worked for was Bernie and he had just won Iowa. And then I worked for, and I worked for John Kerry and I worked for Barack Obama. I was like, why is no one telling me I'm a genius all the time? Um, but no, he was, the thing about Bernie is that he was so engaged in the community that we all felt like we knew Bernie. And this is 1994 when he was just running for Congress. Door to door, dorm to dorm, followed behind uh, by Howard Dean, who was running, was he running for lieutenant governor at the yeah, time? Yeah, he was the lieutenant and governor. And so, um, I f and then of course he ends up running against John Kerry. And I was like, wow, door to door the, works. The, the Never doubt that door to door works. Burlington, yes, Vermont. Exactly. Who and knew? And you're a formative political experience was jumping on a car hood? So when the contract for America came up to Burlington, and you have to wonder to yourself, why did Newt Gingrich think coming to Burlington was a yeah. good idea? Um, but no, all the girls in my dorm were like, let's go get him. And I got real swept up in it. And somehow I was like on the hood. Of I mean, the were car. you political from an early age? I mean, did you talk about politics? In the you know what? It's not, it's not politics you know it's like my favorite movie is the american president i mean not yeah. the only one yeah. but you know that came out in high school for me and i watched it and i was like you know the moment when he goes in for the state of the union yes. and they say mr president mr yeah. speaker the president yeah. and i got goosebumps and it was actually one of the funny things when we got to the white house because that had played in my memory i think i was always drawn to the public service i don't like the fights i don't like people name calling or making up bad things about people but when we got to the White House, all I wanted to do was go to the first State of the Union because I had been dreaming about it. I'd watched every State of the Union ever. And um, uh, POTUS says, um, you know, you're so little that you're not going to be able to actually see anything. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? Don't we get special seats? And he's like, you get no special seats. And I was like, well, I don't want to miss it. So I watched it from home. <laughs> yeah, That is a cool thing. It, I mean, it really, this, uh, this, this one will be interesting if the government is still closed down, yeah. but, but which is quite sad, but it really is a special and wonderful moment as a country, I think yeah. for everybody. Yeah. So, uh, so the Newt Gingrich was bringing the, his campaign for this contract with yes. America up to Bur Burlington. And yes. what did you do? My only memory was going down to whatever street he was. He was doing a meeting, and we had found out where it was. And basically, our dorms, um, my dorm was the closest to downtown. And so like some weird little hippie mob, we all went down there in our Birkenstocks and puffer coats. And we're like, we're here. And he didn't care. It was like it was kind of like a five minute thing. But, you know, I felt excited. And this led to uh, you to go and volunteer with For Bernie. Bernie. I did. I thought that the thing that I thought was so interesting, I mean, truth be told, 
I really just wanted to live in Burlington for the summer. And my parents were like, no, 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 you're going to have some jobs. Uh And so I interviewed with Bernie himself and they were like, okay, you got it. And I loved, I loved, all I did was work the front desk. That was my job. And acts, you know, I like to talk. So I, people would call and I would ask them about all their problems. And, you know, I realized after a couple of weeks, I had helped people with their Medicaid. Mm. I had helped people with their immigration yeah. papers and, and social security. And it doesn't sound sexy, but when someone's... It means something to them. It does. And, and what I was so drawn to was the fact that despite what everybody seems to think today, government matters and it does help people and it has the power to really change people's lives if the right people are on the other end of the phone and so and I was so good at answering the phone that then they brought me down to the campaign so I was a an intern in the morning in the Congress congressional office and then I was an intern at night at this in the uh, house campaign and uh, in between I waited tables and what uh, and tell me about Bernie you drove him around a I little, used to huh? drive Bernie around yeah. you know people when I tell people under the age of say 35 they don't understand but this was before there was an internet or you know when people talk about clips they think that you have a service now that hunts them down and sends you an email my job every morning was to go in and read every single newspaper in Vermont and cut anything, not just that mentioned Bernie, but that was relevant to things he worked on or any problems that he thought he might know about. And so I would cut them, I would paste them on paper, I would photocopy them. And so by the time I picked him up, I knew everything, and which was a bonus of having to read all these papers. And he would quiz me on things. Really? Yes. He would quiz me. Be like, well, wait a minute. What's happening in Rutland? How's the Northeast Kingdom coming? Did they have the, the, did the flood up in the Northeast Kingdom? And so, one, I learned a lot. It drove me to take a course on uh, rural sociology, which has actually been helpful and something I've referenced for 20 years. And... Um, then he would tell me what was happening in Washington, and it sounded so exciting. So it was, well, you know, he he presents, uh, he was my very first Axe Files, by the way. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. The, it was a great conversation. The most memorable thing was I said, well, you, you know, we have 2,000 kids waiting for you, but you're an unlikely rock star. He says, don't don't get me going on those selfies. I hate <laughs> selfies. Uh, it's like Larry David. <laughs> he is. He, he to- is. He totally is. <laughs> But uh, but he how was he to work with? He was terrific. I mean, he was. I mean, remember, it's that he's the independent from Vermont at this point. It's a small state um, and a small staff, and I was included in everything. He asked my opinion. He was so thoughtful. He wanted to know what everybody thought. He took time. What kind of president would he be? You know, I think he wouldn't have liked the job. You know, I think because. Even though we see now that I guess you can eschew every precedent and still not be impeached or, you know, run out of office. But I think he would have made good decisions. I think that he was a very moral person who wanted to do the right things. But, you know, it was sort of the same for us when you come in with so much hope. And so, and have made so many promises for how things can be. I mean, people just want to see you fail. And I don't know if he would have been as resilient. I think that we. I, have I'm just trying to figure out how he would be pardoning the Thanksgiving turkey. I, I feel like that kind of stuff. I think would be. We might have maybe needed a vice president who was down with pardoning <laughs> the turkey because I think he would have been like, "This is stupid. I don't know why I'm doing it, but you're pardoned." Yeah. Right. You know? Or. He's got the same hair as me. Yeah, <laughs> so, and it's true. Uh, so you, uh, uh, because Burlington wasn't left enough for you, you went to Madison for the last two years I of your... I did. And one of my um, stories that I love to tell young people is that how you, you may have a job that you think is uncool or beneath you, like answering the phones every day, but... What happened to me was that Bernie was running late for a meeting and the 608 area code comes up on the phone, which I knew was Madison. I'd already uh, been accepted and was applying. I mean, I'd already applied and been accepted. And I, without really thinking, asked the man, I was like, oh, are you in Madison? And he said, yes, my name is Ed Garvey. And I had heard the name Ed Garvey. I didn't know exactly who he was. And he said, well, what are you doing when you get here? And I said, going to college. And uh, he said, well, you know what? When you get out here, any friend of Bernie's is a friend of mine. And Ed Garvey, the progressive who unionized the NFL Players Association, uh, hired me and 
and paid me for two years to do research for some of his progressive organizations. And when I got arrested for having a fake ID, uh, <laughs> helped me out of the jam and uh, explained how I could get a payment plan to pay off my $500 ticket. Yeah. It was clutch. Is, was this before or after he ran for the Senate there? This was before. He mm -hmm. ran right after I graduated. Yeah, he was a... He was quite a personality. He was a fourth. May he rest in peace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you thought when you got out, you went to Madison because University of Vermont uh, demolished their French program. Yes, so I was a French major with a minor in Japanese in Vermont, and, and they were getting weight of their program. So I transferred to Madison to be a French major with a minor in Japanese, but changed and became a poli-sci major after Bernie. Um, and a, uh, a minor in French. And and you thought you were going to go to Washington when that was over and get a, a job. I did. I was Didn't so happen, naive. Right? I sent so many heartfelt letters to so many people. Um, and... I got no responses. I didn't get one response. And I sent probably every committee, every congressman and senator I thought was interesting and their committees and like the DNC and the DLC and everyone and nobody, uh, nobody wanted me. So I became a real estate paralegal for a few years. In New York. In New York. We moved. Working in the World Trade Center. I did. When we, um, it's actually, it was a really special time, and I obviously didn't want to be a real estate paralegal. It did later help me understand the financial yeah, that's crisis. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's quite a leap from French and Japanese to Bernie yeah. Sanders well, to a uh, real when, estate paralegal. When we had Japanese clients, I was the star of the show. I can tell you that much. But, um, you know, what I realized is... Good restaurants, too. I good mean. restaurants. Yeah, yeah. There is value in every experience. And while I did not want to be a real estate lawyer, like this was not my next step, um, I learned how to be in a team. I learned how to work in a corporate environment. I learned when I was in over my head. Um, and... We would walk every day. Four of us lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Soho, and we would walk every day to save money to the World Trade Center uh, through Tribeca. And it was back when Law and Order would just shoot out. You know, they would just be shooting out. It's not like it is now. And uh, I walked through so many Law and Order sets unwittingly that Jesse L. Martin almost began to know my name. And uh, but we would see JFK Jr. having coffee at least once a week, you know, at this cafe. And I was like, Tribeca is the best place I am ever going to be. And so, you know, 20 years later, now I live now there, live which there. was a it was a real moment. You left in 2000. Uh, one year later, 9/11. Uh, 9/11 happened. Mm -hmm. Did you know people who were? I did. I did. When you know, the funny thing is, is when you've worked in the building. And then you see what's happening in slow motion. And a, a story I've really never told before is my very, very best friend since seventh grade uh, was on her way to one of the law firms there for an interview that day. And she's on her way in from LaGuardia, and she leaves me a voicemail. I was working for John Kerry at the time in Boston. And uh, she says, hey, chicken, I'm watching. My nickname, chicken. She says, I'm watching, uh, I'm watching some smoke come out of your old building. She's like, she's like super weird. I'll call you when I get down there. And because she is not quite like me, who would have been 30 minutes early for her interview, she decided to go into Century 21 and buy some things before she went in for her interview, which ultimately was the most prescient thing she could have done because the plane hit. She was at going into the World Trade Center and for her yeah. interview, and the plane hit. Yeah. Um, and so I did. I had a, a guy who I'd gone on a few dates with and some friends from college who passed it away. must be a, a, a strange and unsettling feeling, knowing if you had stayed for yes. a year or two more. Yes, you and, you know, you, and you start thinking about it, too, what floor you were on, what people you knew. And the, the funny thing is that the, most of the lawyers that we worked for at the um, law firm Thatcher, Prophet & Wood had been there during the bombing in 92 or 93, and they remembered and they told the stories of, you know, having to, like, you know, some of the, like, less fit people, like some of the fit lawyers had to carry the less fit people down the stairs, and, you know, they told you these stories, and that was nothing compared to what yeah. this was. And so all those stories just replayed uh, in my head, and luckily that day when I was in Boston, uh, because I was living there with one of my paralegal pals from the World Trade Center. So we were together, and we spent the day together.
You you mentioned you work for Kerry. Mm -hmm. You went up there to Boston to visit somebody, and you Her, saw yes. him make a a speech. Oh, and I thought it was so wonderful. I he was so. I mean, people can have their criticisms of John Kerry, but he can give a rousing speech. There are a few people smarter than him, and I was like, "What am I doing?" Because at that point, I was working at Sotheby's auction house. <laughs> I've had a real wandering career. Um, and he gave this great speech, and I said, what am I doing? And so I wrote this sort of Jerry Maguire manifesto to their intern coordinator, whose name was actually Benedict. And I said, please just give me a chance. I'll do anything. And they took me at my word. And so I was the... I did the press clips again, and I helped with the schedule, and I answered the phones for uh, $20,500 a year, and uh, it was incredible fun. And I spent a lot of time with John Kerry because I was in Boston, so and then, I, I got to interact with him a lot. And, uh, and how did you make the transition from this entry-level uh, position to you ended up running his scheduling operation when he ran for president. I did. So back when, people don't always remember this, but when when uh, Vice President Gore was running, his vice presidential selection process was sort of the opposite of what everybody's done since, well, except for Trump. And it was very public. public. auditions. It yeah. was these public auditions, and it had been made very clear that John Kerry was the front runner in the papers. And... Um, I was there the day that he was, I think, expecting to get the phone call, and they announced Joe Lieberman. Mm. And, I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, it was an unbelievably sad day, but they came back, and because he is a pull-yourself-and-get-yourself-together kind of guy, he did this trip called Chasing Cheney, and he chased Cheney across America for, like, two weeks. Um, and we never knew where Cheney was going, and the woman who was the director of scheduling was, no, on it was her. Cheney, not Christian Bale. Correct, yeah. though Christian Bale, it, they could be the same. Yeah. Um, Did you see that movie? I, it was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, scary, but whoa, Christian Bale. But the Bale. transformation, I mean, it was Christian perfect. Bale was spectacular. Spectacular. Yeah. I mean, it's, it will be hard to, I cannot think of any movie I have seen where his performance could be beaten. Amy yeah. Adams, too. What uh, Lynn yeah. Cheney. I mean, yeah. it was. I thought it was an incredible story. So for the sake of this story, that was like the actual Dick Cheney. And um, so basically John Kerry and his, uh, his uh, uh, press secretary, David Wade, hit the road. We did not know where they would be day to day. And I was just like mission control in that desk. I was, you know, okay, we need a plane. Call Fred Smith. I was like, you mean like FedEx, Fred, Fred Smith? Yeah. And I did. Who was an old friend of Carrie's. Old friend of Carrie's. And yeah. so every place we had a different airplane waiting for us or a commercial flight. And it was the most exhilarating thing I had ever done. So and he was traveling around in FedEx? FedEx planes. I, mean, I, I don't think it was they, fancy. They it was like cargo-ish. FedEx trucks and there was and he <laughs> drop we, him off we had little that. minivans <laughs> waiting for him and he was really energized and felt like he was being useful you know everybody wants to feel yeah. useful and like they're making a difference and it was so wild and at the end uh of the whole thing john Kerry came into the office and I, I think i went over to the house which was down the street and he said kid you're very good at this and I didn't even know what this really was, but it, it is something that even today I have a hard time being chill about logistics. <laughs> yeah, and you went and did a little stint with uh, Rick Boucher. I did. Rick Boucher from Virginia's Fighting Night. Congressman. Yeah. Yes. I was his press secretary. <laughs> yeah. But not for long because you went back to work for Kerry. No, and, you know, I am someone, I'm, like, very loyal. My parents always taught me, like, you know, when you take a job, you keep a job. You know, like, you don't leave after nine months because John Kerry calls you. And Rick Boucher had given me tremendous responsibility, and uh, I spent a lot of time in the 9th District of Virginia, which is near Tri-Cities. Mm -hmm. And uh, when John Kerry called me in November of 2002 uh, to see if I would be willing to come back, and of course I wanted to. I mean, a presidential campaign. I was like yeah. 26 at the time. Yeah. And uh, I had to get the chutzpah up to go in and tell Rick Boucher. And he said, I wouldn't let you stay if you wanted to stay. Oh, that's nice. You know, because he, I think he had worked on Jimmy Carter's campaign and said it was such an incredible experience. So he was, uh, he was lovely about it. And um, people also forget this. So I signed on with Kerry. I started in December 2002. Shortly thereafter, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Right. 
And so while I have deep affection for him, I'm like, oh, my God, am I going to be unemployed again? But um, luckily he was OK. So it was all good. Yeah. We, we just did a, a, a TV show with him. And um, uh, one of the things we talked about was what people who run for president don't know mm-hmm. about running for president. And everybody goes into it. Maybe it's like, you know, other things that childbirth and other things that if you knew about it you'd be really hesitant to if you knew about the pain there's pain yeah and so one of the stories uh that he wrote about in his book was having uh, recovering from prostate surgery and and having to rally himself to get out of bed and 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 go to events against doctors orders he took very little downtime after his surgery and um if I remember correctly, you know, he had to have a coloscopy bag for a yeah. while, which Mrs. Hines lovingly called his Gucci bag. <laughs> um, and we we knew that we had to keep him down, like that we had to say, okay, you're going to do this event, but we would make them house parties, you know, instead of, uh, or smaller fundraisers instead of these rousing things. But he he hid his, his pain and his recovery because after about a week, we were like, oh, JK's back, like he's mm-hmm. fine. And we all believe that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, um, the the physical and emotional toll of running for president, uh, unless you're just a half-assed candidate, right, is is really extraordinary. Maybe it's right. Maybe you're auditioning for the toughest job on the planet. It should be so, hard. Yeah. I always thought his resilience came from the fact that he had been through much worse in his life. Yeah. I mean, I guess when you've been to Vietnam. Yeah. You know, maybe struggling through Iowa in the winter is not as dramatic as some people feel it is. Yeah. So tell me about that experience generally. Uh, um, it was, you know, you take away so much from every experience, but it was uh, it was brutal. It was brutal because it was also the beginning of when small things became big things very quickly because the 24-hour, new, like, cable news had really started to take off. And so... I have feelings about justice and fairness and you know when the swift boat ads happened and he didn't want to respond because in his core he did not think that the American people would believe such garbage except that 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 cable news networks as part of the news were showing it more right. than it had even been paid for but it was a camp- He says that he did that in his gut he did want to respond but the advice he got was not to respond. Oh, well, he did not ask me because I would have been like scrappy do out there for him. Yeah. Um but for the rest of the campaign, you know, we had a lot more tumult than we had on the Obama campaign. People coming and going and you know, the thought that sometimes you have to just stay the course to get through the rough times and I think that on that campaign we pivoted a lot and um ultimately it didn't uh, it didn't help us. And running against a wartime president's never easy. But he, against George W. Bush, he, um, he, you guys came awfully close. We'll talk about that in a mm-hmm. second. Um, you know, he said at the, uh, uh, well, I guess I'll let people watch it. <laughs> it's going to be, <laughs> be on, on uh, Saturday night, right? So, um, uh, but it was interesting to hear him talk about that experience and what he, he took away from it. Um, election night in 2004 because it wasn't as if he tried and missed by a lot no I mean there was a period of time and you write about this in your in your book there was a period of time during that night when you guys thought he had won And he thought he had won. Everybody thought. He calls it the three hours when he was president of the United States. And I think that's probably how we all thought of it, too. Um, We were listening to exit polls, which I will never do again. But the exit polls had us up uh, an incredible amount in so many states that we decided we knew we were going to, in my view, the next day I was going to have to be up at the crack of dawn transitioning. You know, quicks. I had been part of the transition with uh, Jim Johnson and Mary Beth and for months working on uh, how someone becomes president the next day. And so I said to all the girls, I was like, well, let's have a drink now so that we can be up bright, bright and early. So unfortunately... You had more than one. We had more than one. And by about, it might have been seven o'clock or so, so several of us had had way too many. 
Uh, and the numbers in Ohio started going south. And within a couple hours, uh, we were not planning for the transition, but uh, could we get Faneuil Hall on short notice for a concession speech? Yeah. Um, so much of it helped me, though, when Barack Obama ran for president. You know, you don't have the fireworks. You don't ask Bon Jovi to come sing. You go into everything like you have no idea what's really going to happen, and you don't plan for winning. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, that was the Although saddest. you did have the foresight to book Grant Park in 2008. Well, I mean, that was a high wire act, as Pluff would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I and in my def- I was so worried about Grant Park that day because it was 70 degrees and sunny. That was the forecast. I was like, it's all going to go tits up. And so I went and bought a raincoat. <laughs> to ward off the rain because I thought, and there I was with my raincoat at my desk, <laughs> and it was 75, and uh, everyone was going over to Grant Park. And I was like, wait, I can't forget my coat. They're like, Alyssa, we want, leave your coat here. It's okay. You talk about the, the uh, sort of turmoil and turnover in that campaign. One of the guys who got turned over uh, was someone who we claimed in the Obama for Senate campaign in Illinois, and that's Robert Gibbs, who was press secretary and left uh, early in the Kerry campaign. Uh, that was that was a turned out to be a really fortuitous it was. Uh, relationship for you. I had um, first I loved working. I had never met anyone like Gibbs before. And we sat on the same floor. And I mean, he is a character. He is so smart. And I remember when Ethan was born, yeah, Ethan was son, born yeah. while we sat uh, up on that floor. And when he left, I cried. I, I, he was like my, my only friend who I didn't know going in, you know. And, um, but it turned out he went to work for this man, Barack Obama. I'm like, who the hell's Barack Obama? Why are you leaving to go work for Barack Obama? Um, and when we lost, I was in the, when John Kerry lost, I was in the headquarters uh, filing things and making sure vendors got paid and closing it down, a very depressing job when you lose. And uh, I was sitting at my computer and my AOL instant messenger pops up from Roberto Gibbs. Uh, and he says, and I could hear his voice through it, how are you? Uh, do you need a job? And I was like, yes, I need a job. And he's like, call me tonight. And so Gibbs brought me in to meet this man, Barack Obama. Yeah. Actually, the first person I met was Pete Rouse. Yeah, who became Obama's chief of staff. Chief of staff. Uh, both of those were, you know, so much uh, of of the Obama story is the people who mm-hmm. uh, who queued up along the way to help. I mean, Gibbs is is a prodigious talent. He and don't you uh, feel like Barack Obama was like Moneyball before Moneyball was a thing? <laughs> you know, he didn't pick the most famous people. A lot of people wanted to work for him, especially after that speech yeah. at the convention that year. And he really did kind of put together the Moneyball team. Our campaign was the Moneyball team. Yeah, you well, know? I, I always talk about it as Ocean's Eleven. Yes, like we start off with nothing, and we were able to pick and choose. And it wasn't just people who were talented; it was people who would fit the. Who are good people. Fit, fit in our, yes. uh, our culture in that campaign. Uh, so you went to work in his Senate office. I went to work in his Senate office with uh, some people you might have heard of, John Favreau and Tommy Vitor. Yeah. And we sat in the back uh, by Senator Obama's office. And uh, one of my, you know, after working for John Kerry, who had been a senator for so long, you just you either called him J.K. or Senator Kerry. And we were still in the transition. When you come into the Senate, you have to transition as people move out. And so we were in the basement of the Dirksen office. I remember. And uh, Pete Rouse, who had become the chief of staff, had previously been Tom Daschle's chief of staff. He was the... He, Pete, Pete is like Yoda on Capitol Hill. He is. He is the, he was, the 101st senator. Yeah. And so he was the he was the chief of staff for the majority leader. He was the chief leader. of staff for the majority leader who was defeated in 2004. Right, four. Four. And uh, hit the man who beat him, John Thune, was our next door neighbor in the Dirksen basement. And because Pete was the 101st mayor, he was able to have them uh, create a pathway for him so he didn't have to walk by <laughs> John Thune's <laughs> office uh, every day. And Pete is the most loyal guy on the planet. The most loyal and, guy. And, 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 and his loyalty to Daschle was unending. Uh, and Senator Obama then comes back from the Senate floor one day and says, you know, 
I've been talking about bipartisanship and, you know, I think John Thune and I are going to do an exchange program where he comes to Chicago for a weekend and I go there. And Pete, Pete who is, uh, does not mince words, goes over my dead body. And that's where that died. Um, but Pete was, um, Pete was, I mean, there I was hear no. That story. Maybe that's why his Secret Service name, name was, was Possum. Possum. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he picked it himself, but they picked it for him. But that office was um, wonderful. And one day, uh, Pete says to me, you know, Obama wants to talk to you about something. And so I go into the office and I'm like, hey, what's up? Uh, He says, have I done something to offend you? Like a United States senator asking me. And I was like, sir, no, why? He goes, well, you insist on calling me senator. Just call me Barack. And I was like, but if I call you Barack... Ted Kennedy and Bob Byrd and these lions of the Senate are going to think that you're not worth your salt because your pipsqueak is calling you Barack. And so we brokered a deal. Barack in private, Senator Obama in public. In the winter of 2006, he decided that he was, uh, well, late winter, mm-hmm. the, the whole presidential thing came together. And this is where the Ocean's Eleven thing came in. because Yeah. When we, when a few of us met, and you ultimately were one of them, uh, there was nothing. We had no nothing. infrastructure. Nothing. We, we had less than nothing. We pulled off our announcement tour in February, not even having credit cards yet. So talk about building the plane uh, as it's flying. And that was not a. Uh, that was no small thing. It was. It was that uh, that announcement tour. Announcing in Springfield, Illinois, in the outside the, the, in, in, in the dead of winter, outside the old state capitol where Lincoln prepared for his presidency. And I remember, I was just telling Carrie about this, how uh, upset uh, Mrs. Obama was about how we were going to expose all these people to cold. Yes. And, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, like 20,000 hand warmers showed up which had your yes we so ultimately if you're building the event and you're getting the people there you somehow become responsible for the weather and um i had been in springfield for a couple of days and it was so cold i had on my hemp vest my long north face sleeping bag coat and a hat and i don't think i took it off for three days and we build the whole stage and also remember that we were really just running against Hillary Clinton at that point. And campaigns are campaigns, and it's, you know, so much time has passed. But the truth was, you know, they were very specific. When I was asking people if they would come help us, advanced staff and other people to come help us with our um, announcement event, they had been told by the Clintons, if you do anything for Obama, you can't come back. Right. And so they were my friends. I knew them from Cary Land, and I and many of them had gone back to Gore, like go all the way back to Gore. And so we had a f- four or five people who I said, if you do this for me, I will take care of you for the rest of your lives. I promise you'll work in the White House, which is something I was nervous about for two years after that point. Um, but all these new people who had not done it before came down, and Obama knew that. He knew, and he said, who are all these people? And I said, well, we're going to find out. And uh, so he gets down for his first walkthrough the night before the event. And uh, our friend Emmett had built the site, Emmett Bellavo, who was the director of advance. And I wanted him to take Obama for the walkthrough. And uh, he comes back, and I'm like, what did he think? And he asked if the stage was going to collapse. And when (laughs) Emmett said no, he said good, because that's about the worst thing that could happen tomorrow. (laughs) And, um, And then Michelle made a comment about the worst thing happening would be people freezing to death. Yes. So we bought out every hand warmer in a hundred mile radius and just handed them out. It was an amazing event. It was amazing. 17,000 people or something. It was the the energy. Yeah. So tell me about the, um, tell me, uh, I mean, just, I I need to squish this part of the story. Yeah. But that was, you know, I have my own voluminous memories of that campaign, but what's your most vivid memory of that 2008 campaign? Uh, I have two. One is when everyone went to Iowa and there were about, it was about two weeks before the Iowa uh, caucuses and the entire Chicago headquarters had emptied out. And there were, um, this is not hyperbole, there were about eight of us holding it down in Chicago. And I found uh, one of my staff people, Chase Cushman, sleeping under his desk when I came in one morning. And I said, Chase, 
when did you get here? And he said, AM, it's crazy in Iowa. I had to stay here all night, like helping, like he was helping remotely. Yeah. And to me, that was the embodiment of our entire campaign. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't, he was just asleep under his desk. And the other one was uh, the last day. And um, I get, I still get teary eyed thinking yeah. about it. But all of you guys were in like the bullseye or the boiler room, whatever it was. And um, because I had celebrated early in 2004 and felt so strongly that I could not be the person who went to Grant Park early, um, I was sitting at my desk and my two deputies, Danielle and Jessica, came up and they were like, you're, this is enough, enough. It was like eight or nine o'clock. They're like, you're going. And so we went down to Houlihan's and we had some chicken tenders and Pinot Grigio and uh, they called Ohio. As one should on election. I mean, it was, you know, health food. And uh, they called Ohio and they called, I think, New Mexico or something like that. And the girls said, oh my God, is this going to happen? And we ran over and got on my very elaborate trolley system that I had put together to get people to Grant Park. And as we were getting closer and closer, you could hear people shouting. And we pulled up and Wolf Blitzer was on the Jumbotron, yeah. and he had just declared yeah. Barack Obama the 44th president of the United States. Yeah. We all start crying. We're trying to find people. And, like, Brad Pitt was in front of me. And, like, normally I would have been like, Brad Pitt, what are you doing? But I was like, get out of my way. He's I need a little to fi- dude. You He's like, I need to him. find my people. Yeah. And that was and, – and the funniest thing is, is at the end of that night, my whole team got up on stage and took a, a group picture. And the only two people in the picture, not in the picture, are Danielle and I because we left to go home because that, in fact, was the day I had to be at the office at 6 a.m. the next day because we had a president-elect on our hands. That that Wolf Blitzer announcement is, like, is something that I, I was in the – in the boiler room with 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 David Pluff, our my my longtime partner, the campaign manager, uh, and a number of other people, uh, and Wolf Blitzer said, "In ten seconds, we have a an important announcement." And of course, we knew what that announcement was. And yet, when he said the words, it was there's inc- something about inc- him. I will never ever forget that never, moment. Never, as long as and actually, when I am um, particularly down in the dumps and when I needed inspiration to write the first book I would rewatch the last event of the campaign in Manassas yeah. and that was so special to me because you could watch Obama at the end of that event really taking it in yeah. you know and it's an amazing event it was an amazing event seeing him take it in that was after his grandmother uh, that, that was after she'd passed, passed away and he was more emotional that night than maybe I've ever seen him. No, and it was, and we could tell, I was in Chicago watching it, and I really, I just couldn't believe that it was all coming together, but that, um, that was a, I watched that, and I watched uh, Wolf Blitzer yeah. say that we're going to, and because and in the clip that you can find, it, he announces it, and then they go around the world showing the yeah. response around the world, yeah. and I mean, there's nothing. No, I, I believe, I'm right there with you. I get, Do you think the same thing happened in 2016? Uh, well, I think, they, yeah, <laughs> I think there were scenes all around the world, people <laughs> saying, huh, what? Uh, so, the White House, mm. um, I'm sure you had the same feeling I did when you walked in there the first time, which is... Uh, awe. It it's, the and this is part of in in this presidency of the last two years that le, that really wounds me is that when the first time we walked in, um, I was with Danielle, my deputy. We thought we were going for one of the many transition meetings that you have, which were in the EEOB, the Executive Office Building, which is next door. And the Secret Service says to us, "No, ladies, you're going into the West Wing." And we we're like, "No, no, no, no." And we were like really chubby from the campaign. Our clothes didn't exactly fit comfortably, and yeah. so we like shuffled. By the way, that was a that it was, was a, not it common. It was universal. To, yes, exactly. It was we all universal. Were, we all were a little large. And we get into the into the West Wing uh, reception, and the greatest leaders of the world, celebrities, philanthropists, performers, have all been in that space, and you're overwhelmed. You know, I had never been to the White House before, ever. And we're overwhelmed. And uh, the kindest thing I think that 
anyone's ever done is that it was Josh Bolton's idea to bring us George over. George Bush's George chief of Bush's staff. George Bush's chief of yeah. staff. He met with us. And we're just these little pipsqueaks, you yes. know. He met with us and he said, um, we wanted to make sure we know what your jobs are going to be like when you get here. And you're really not going to enjoy anything uh, that other people think is wonderful. And so we wanted to make sure that you... Uh, got to enjoy the spirit of Christmas because you're never going to enjoy it again. And they gave us a tour of the entire house and the Christmas decorations. Listen, the the George W. Bush people were incredibly gracious. Incredibly kind. Incredibly kind. uh, and, And I always tell people it wasn't because we were that good to him. You know, we spent two years no. pounding the administration. Uh, it was because they thought it was their responsibility to see to the country. Yes. To see to it that there was a smooth uh, transition. And, and, you know, that was really meaningful. It was. And our commitment, especially after that point, because at the end of that, of our tour, um, they took us downstairs where my office would be and they showed us all these binders that they had put together. And acts, I do not know what we would have done without those binders. And so we told them our commitment to them was that we would make sure we updated those binders every two years and that whoever became president, if even in 2012, we would show them the same kindness that they showed us. And, uh, And we did. Yeah. You should have made it pictorial so the president could Cartoon absor- book? Ab- absorb them. Do it in family so, circus style. Um, you know, speaking of him, mm. uh, it was interesting to me. He just made his first visit uh, to uh, Iraq yeah. uh, to see troops. And he was talking about how, how, I don't, dangerous, you, it how, how dangerous it was. How dangerous it was. And it reminded me of the, the trips that I was on that you orchestrated. Yeah. Um, to uh, when there was actual danger associated with... With storms, our first trip. You were on the first trip yes, to yeah, Iraq. Yeah. And uh, we, I mean, talk about... Uh, we never did things the easy way, ever. And so we decided our first trip to Iraq should be at the end of like a 10-day trip uh, that concluded in Turkey. And we had this whole cover story that one of the planes was broken. And so some of us were going on ahead and everybody else was going to wait for the other plane to be fixed. So we get, we get on the plane. We're flying to uh, out of Turkish airspace. You go dark. They explain all of this to you in advance. Because, What's going to because, happen? Because there's, if, if, the, Danger. If, if the enemy knew that the president of the United States was flying overhead. They could track you, and bad things could happen. Yeah. So it's our first trip ever, and I always tell the story because Axe is the one who busted me, is that I was so nervous I was going to barf on the helicopters that I loaded my coat jacket with plastic bags, and Axe is like, Alyssa, why are you so puffy? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm fine. He's like, no, like, what's in your jacket? And I was like, okay, you know, I don't want to be the girl on the trip that barfs on everybody. And Axe is like, why do you think we're not going to barf? And I was like, well, then I'll share the bags. Um, And we're flying into uh, Camp Victory in Iraq. And we get word from, again, Emmett and General uh, Ray Ordierno, who was down uh, on the ground. And they say there's a sandstorm coming. And you're not going to be able to take the helicopter to see the leaders and uh, the leaders of Iraq. And so we come up with a plan. There's actually a, a pretty famous picture of all of us on yes, the, yeah, in the all conference the phones, room yeah. on Air Force One. And it's, we're it's all, in your book, I think. Yeah, I think it was because mm-hmm. I was the only lady in the conference room. Um, and we land and we had to just pivot on the dime. You know, all of a sudden, we're instead of going to meet all these leaders where they are, we're in Ray Ordierno's house, which had previously been, I think, Saddam Hussein's yes. mother-in-law. I think palace, it was his yeah. mother-in-law's palace. Um, and all of these leaders are coming through yeah, with these armed, well. tru- like pe- like just truckloads of people with guns. And I get this phone call. My phone rings. And it's my sister. And she just goes, um, sis, are you in Iraq? And I was like, <laughs> I am. Call you later. She's like, whoa, I'm watching it on TV. But that was, you know, because you can't tell anyone. That's part of it. You, yeah. you know, you can't tell anyone where you're going. I know. My wife was flipping out. Right. But the truth is that you are in the hands of the best people to get you there. And any president who goes out and tries to pat themselves on the back because it was scary yeah. is insane. I mean, that was that was really, I had to turn, I, I had to turn off at that point. I was like, this is beyond my realm of comprehension. What was your best memory of your, your first of all, you, you mentioned you were the only lady in the room. I want to ask you about how you have navigated. You're one of the most capable people that I've ever 
worked with, and I, I say that behind your back. Thank you. I have a uh, funny story about that. But uh, you, um, but you know, you are you're short. I would describe <laughs> you as cherubic. I am cherubic. I yes, cherubic that. was the word. You, you almost look forty three and still cherubic. Go to the dictionary and look up cherubic, and you'll see <laughs> Alyssa's picture. Uh, and uh, as such, there, there probably the impulse of some was not to treat you. Mm-hmm with the seriousness that you should be treated. And how often did you run into that? Well, you know, a lot of the interesting things is that people always want to tell me or ask me about sexism. You know, you were with all these men and the sexism, and I have always been clear, the only thing I ever suffered from on occasion was ageism. And it was not from the people in the Obama team. You know, you go into the White House and you have a shirt with hearts on it because you forget you're meeting with the White House military office and you have the rank of a three I had the as deputy chief of staff for operations I had the rank uh, the protocol rank of a three-star general okay but there are real three-star generals that you're meeting who don't have hearts on their shirts who do not have hearts on their shirts and you know one of them actually said to me because I had done of course many conference calls with them and they were basically like, if you want people to take you seriously, stay on the phone. Um, because in, cause in person, I am quite cherubic. But I decided that instead of going in, you know, like some asshole who's like, I know everything. And I decided that it, when I was preparing for the meeting, I went through the binder. And uh, instead of learning what I needed instead of forcing myself to try to learn things, I just figured out what questions I wanted to ask. And when I went in and led with curiosity, um, I think that they respected that I understood our relationship and that they were the experts and that we would be partners. Um, And from that point on, it was easier, though I was just saying to uh, uh, Dan Pfeiffer the other day that I wished we had been just like a couple years older when we had gotten to the White House because despite... I think having done a a job as well as someone 20 years older than us could have done in our jobs, there is a, I look back and I wish I had appreciated things more. Like I know I'm a sensitive person. I knew I could get my nose out of joint. I rarely get my nose out of joint now. And so I think that that was the, there was like an emotional maturity. I could have used maybe like an extra couple of years, though I may just be so awesome now because I went through that, you know, (laughs) between 30 and Although, you know, the thing that you've done, the thing that you've done uh, and the the Pod Save America guys and Mm -hmm. so on, I mean, the most, the, I always kind of worried about you guys because this was the f- almost, the, for many of those guys, it was like the, the first big professional mm-hmm. thing that they did. And to have the first thing you did be something so enormous and so, and then, you know, it's easy to lose your own identity and yes. you're forever that mm-hmm. person. And so, but you went and you left, when you left the White House, you went to Vice. I did. Uh, which was another kind of a whole nother world, enterprise. but you, you, but you, you claimed your own identity. I did, back. but I also, it took me a while to understand that I really did suffer from depression when I left the white house. Yeah, as did I, you know, and people don't talk about it, but you live off of adrenaline. There are yeah. two things that happen. You live off of adrenaline for all of those years and then you go off a cliff and everybody thinks, oh, you must be so stoked to like sleep 10 hours a day when really you're looking at your phone and you're like, why doesn't anyone need my opinion? I so identify with right? this. It I mean, it was a very hard adjustment. You're like at the center of the universe for a long time. Yes. And then suddenly it's like being on a carousel that's going 200 miles an hour and all of a sudden you're dumped off your horse and you're on the side. The carousel's still going, but mm-hmm. you're not on it. You're not on it. And you think that you've been so integral. And look, I always try to tell myself that I led my team in a, uh, you know, if I should get hit by a bus. You know, the whole point of my position there was that if I had to leave on a beat, things would go out, would go on as if I were there, you know, and I thought that's always been the responsible thing. But when you leave and the next day, you're like, everyone's going to call me because they're going to want to know how I do the manifests or whatever it was I was doing. Um, And they don't. And a couple weeks go by and no one calls. I really spiraled. And so um, in, in, in a way, it took me years to actually realize that it had happened. Um, but so then I go, of course, to Vice and, you know, interview with Shane Smith, who's larger than life, who's 
so excited to have me on board. This very nice New York Times story comes out about me, and I show up for my first day of work at Vice. And, uh, you know, I think Salissa from the White House in Williamsburg. Everybody's going to know who I am. And I go in the first day, and the woman at the front desk, I was like, hi, uh, uh, my name's Alyssa Mastromonaco. And she's like, are you here to interview? And I was like, no, it's my first day. And she's like, okay, sit on the couch. I'll find someone for you. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like yeah. this is this is it. And you you come to realize that you're, you know, you've had wonderful experiences that define some of who you are. But you know, it was actually this has all been part of a conversation because I said to I was talking again to Pfeiffer yesterday, and I'm like, I think I peaked at 35. And I go, are we like child stars? Am I going to be Danny Bonaducci? And he's <laughs> like, he goes, no, just keep the pot to a minimum. You'll be fine. But, um, but that was, you know, and, you know, if I did peak at 35, then I am the luckiest 35-year-old that ever was. Yeah. Do you think you'd do this again? I know um, that people would love to have you. You know, it's funny. I can't, I could never go back to the White House because I think that, anything short of us all being back together again would not be worth it. I think that we were the luckiest people on earth to have been together and to have seen the good and the very, very bad. And um, that's actually some of, unfortunately, the most memorable things were the really terrible times. And so what, I could, What is the most of the... The most terrible? Yeah. Oh, it was Newtown. Yeah. It was Newtown. That was, you know, and I tried to tell, especially when I was at Vice, young reporters, that when you're in the White House and you see how things unfold, you know, the very, f and, 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 and responsible reporting, you know, that very first phone call we got was that we heard there might be a mall shooting in Connecticut. That was the first, and, you know, fast forward three hours, we know how the story ends. Um, and I that, was gone at the time. I got an email I from know. the president and he said, this is the first time I've cried in the Oval Office. He did with me and John Brennan because uh, Brennan and I were sort of each keeping, uh, I was sort of dealing with the White House side of things and he was talking to the FBI and Brennan came to my office and he said, it's worse than we could have imagined. And we had to go up and tell POTUS together what had happened. And this is part of the being in the White House because it was uh, uh, December 14th, I think. And Christmas events are going oh, on yeah. in the White House. And as Brennan and POTUS and I have tears running down our faces trying to have a, a, a logistical conversation, he said, I go, you know, so I'm going to go over and I'm going to take care of the people in the East Room for the Christmas party, which was one of the ones that was open to the public, right? So, and he said, Alyssa, I'm, you know, I need a couple minutes, but I got to go over. There are people who saved up all year to come and see me at Christmas. And even though it's so sad, I need to, they need to see me and I need to tell them it's going to be okay. And those are the moments when I wonder, and I literally thank God that nothing that terrible has, has happened, happened yeah. because I don't know that this White House is capable of, of making America feel okay when something like that happens. And is that, uh, no, that's not enough to get you back in the game, huh? You know, my problem has been, if Donald Trump hadn't have become president, if Hillary had won, I never would have looked back. You know, I never wanted to be one of those people that we dealt with on the reg uh, who were like fishing for state dinner invitations. Mm -hmm. You're like, didn't you go 10 years ago? Like, why <laughs> do you want to go to this one? Right. And I don't, I don't want to be that person. But if I think someone needs my help to take him down, I would probably help. All right. Well, now it's on the record and you're, you're, you're going to have to get an unlisted an, number. An unlisted number. Get, uh, you're going to get a ton of uh, phone calls. Wait, can I tell my favorite Axelrod story? Well, how can I stop? <laughs> no, this is this is the wonder of Axe. So we were on the campaign, and a very famous television anchor, who I will not name, uh, came to do a tour of the headquarters with Axe. And so Axe had planned all the stops, and I was a stop, and Pfeiffer was a stop, and I think uh, Pfeiffer was the first stop, and this person says how young and handsome Dan Pfeiffer is, and, you know, he looks too young to have all this responsibility, and Axe brings this person to me, and what this person says is, so Alyssa, 
if Obama wins, is what's your next move? Are you going to go start your own travel agency? <laughs> and Axe went purple in the face, purple, and said, travel agency, no offense to travel agents. He's like, she could run the Joint Chiefs. And I was like, I appreciated that. I will never forget that because I was dying on the inside and you were just like, you just jumped to my rescue. And I will, I well, always tell people I that story. I just told the truth. I, I, I will say that um, Barack Obama was um, a singular uh, figure, talent, uh, but he also was blessed with the help of some really, really talented people. And when I think of every that whole journey, you were at the center of it. I was and, there. And you made things happen in ways that I don't think other people necessarily would have. Uh, so uh, uh, the country should be grateful to you, but I certainly am Thank for you, what you've done. And uh, I... I I mentioned it in the introduction. I'll, uh, I'll say it again. The best-selling book, Who Thought This Was a Good Idea? And now, another book coming. So here's the thing. Notes on growing up, getting older, and trusting your gut. So, trusting your Which gut. will be another bestseller, I'm sure. I hope so. Alyssa it's- Mastermonico, always great to see you. Thank you. And, and reminisce with you. I know. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.